This is an ABC podcast. Uh, my name's Dennis Frost. I'm in my mid-60s at the moment. I was diagnosed with dementia almost six years ago now, which I found to be um, a bit of a relief because I had a, a finally a, an explanation of some of the problems I've been having. Dennis Frost, who since his dementia diagnosis is moved to tears by his favourite song, Black Star by David Bowie. Hi, it's All in the Mind. I'm Lynn Malcolm with the first of the year's highlight programs for RN Summer. Today, the experience of dementia, what new research is showing about the role of sleep and how people with some forms of dementia lose the ability to daydream. So I've been working with individuals with frontotemporal dementia for almost 10 years now. And something that struck me was really that the individuals affected seem unable to use their imagination and to think in creative and flexible ways. And so at a conference many years ago, a colleague of mine asked me, do these patients daydream? And the question really resonated with me because nobody had asked that question before. And it's something that we take for granted, I think, within the dementia space, that there's this common sort of misperception that perhaps the individual is lost in their thoughts or lost in their own world. Associate Professor Marin Irish and more from her research on daydreaming later. Dementia describes a collection of symptoms affecting thinking, behaviour and the ability to perform everyday tasks. It's the second leading cause of death of Australians, and there are around 440,000 people living with some form of it. Dementia is an umbrella term for somewhere between 100 and 200 different conditions. Dennis Frost describes some of the problems he was facing before his diagnosis at the age of 60. The main catalyst was uh, an episode I had in a, a hardware store where someone came up to me and started talking about work. And I had no idea who this person was, but they had clearly a, a very good understanding of who I worked with, where I worked, etc. And I later sort of worked out that that person worked in the administration section, the floor below us. But with that in the back of my mind, I started to realise that the people I've been working with for 10 or 15 years, if they were dressed differently or I met them outside of where I expected to see them, I didn't recognise them. Um, and I was teaching at that stage and then I realised... Again, this is probably within the space of two or three weeks that all this happened, that um, this one class just didn't quite seem right this day and I eventually worked out that when a couple of students asked questions after about 15 minutes or so that they weren't sitting where I expected them to sit so the voices weren't matching up to the, to the locations. Then the fun part started because I went along to GP and uh, explained to her what had been happening so she set me on a path of some testing to try and eliminate bits and pieces. But the result was at the end of the first day, I was told that I had dementia. I had two, three years, maybe eight years to live, up to maybe 20, and I should go home and quietly retire. Which he didn't do, by the way. Dennis was diagnosed with a type of younger onset dementia called semantic variant frontotemporal dementia. This means that he has prosopagnosia, a difficulty recognising faces, and he often can't find the particular word he's looking for. I had an episode two days ago, 
because my wife was going to have the following day off and I thought I'd cook breakfast and I thought it'd be an opportunity to, to make an omelette. But I couldn't think of what the word omelette was. It took me five or ten minutes to finally come to the, the word omelette. So how does that feel for you when you realise that you just not function as, as well as you were? Well, some aspects can be frustrating, but a lot of the bits I now accept and I've got a philosophy, you know, I've got dementia, what's your excuse? It's not a, if you like, a, a fault on my part, it's a biochemical failing in the form of a better description. The cause we don't know, ultimately. And if I start worrying about trying to avoid situations and things where that, I, that could happen, it becomes very much limiting and probably compounds the, the problems as well. So how do people react to you? Well, it's interesting because at one level people find it hard to think that I have a, a form of dementia because most people don't know what dementia is and it's variety of forms and that it's also a terminal disease. And I was fortunate five years ago in getting involved in the Kiama Dementia Friendly Communities Project. It was one of an, quite a number of pilot projects that was then Alzheimer's Australia were piloting around the country. But one thing that the Kiama Project really based itself on was having people with dementia as equal partners in the project. And that's sort of broken down a lot of the, uh, the social stigma in the community. And now I'd say that most people I encounter in the community in things that I'm involved in have got a degree of understanding of dementia and are usually very accepting. Dennis Frost now speaks at public awareness sessions for Dementia Alliance International about how the reaction from others and the stigma around dementia is often worse than the condition itself. Thirty to fifty percent of the risk for dementia is due to things that are modifiable, like cardiovascular disease, depression, and your level of physical and mental activity. And now sleep is emerging as a new risk factor. Professor Sharon Naismith is head of the Healthy Brain Aging Program at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. She explains how sleep is important for brain ageing. There's a number of mechanisms. So one of the recent discoveries has been that sleep is a bit like a plumbing or a sewage system for the brain. So while we go to sleep, we actually clear out all of these toxic chemicals and proteins that are involved in different types of dementia. So beta amyloid is one type of protein. It's a sticky-like substance that accumulates in the brain. And studies have shown that while we're awake, we build up these levels of beta amyloid, but when we go to sleep, they're cleared out. But sleep is very multifaceted. So there are other mechanisms at play. And we know that about 60 to 75% of older people have some degree of sleep disordered breathing. And through that, their sleep becomes very fragmented. They wake up a lot. But more importantly, they're actually stopping breathing while they're sleeping. And this actually starves their brain of oxygen. So we get this hypoxic change in these key structures that actually underpin our memory. So the hippocampus in particular is the seat of memory implicated in Alzheimer's disease and hypoxia is very detrimental to that. 
The other thing about sleep is that we know that it actually promotes a phenomenon called neurogenesis. So this is actually the creation of new neurons and we know that this process can occur in the hippocampus. So if you deprive an animal of sleep for one day, it probably has little effect. But if you have chronic sleep disruption, you actually impair this process of neurogenesis. And then we also know that sleep is important for immune regulation and other kind of inflammatory processes. So there are multiple mechanisms and I guess that's what we're really focused on trying to unravel the extent to which these are at play and which one is most important and therefore that would guide our interventions. Um, I guess there's one other area that is kind of related to those things but has, I guess, more direct translation benefits is um, that sleep actually plays a major role in consolidating our memories overnight and even during the daytime. So if you ask a person to learn something and go to sleep versus stay awake, the person that goes to sleep will remember that material much better. And we do know that in older people that process of sleep-dependent memory consolidation starts to get impaired and I guess we really interested to know why that happens and how that happens and therefore we can start to think about interventions to improve people's memories. So how did you study people who may have been at risk of getting dementia in relation to sleep? Mm, That's a good question. So we do know that there's a group of people and we call the term mild cognitive impairment, which essentially represents a group of people who are at risk of dementia. So when we test them using formal neuropsychological testing, we find that they perform well below their peers to a statistical level. And this group of people are at high risk of conversion. So within five years, about 45% of them will convert to dementia. So we knew a lot about sleep changes in dementia. You know, people have complete day-night reversal. They're up during the night wandering. They have this phenomenon called sundowning. And so we're really inspired to see then, you know, when are these changes starting to occur and is there a critical window by which we could target interventions in this period? Um, And so that's why really we focus our work at looking at the period just before people get dementias like Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. Certainly in many other areas of early intervention for dementia, this seems to be a bit of a critical window so that if you do provide the interventions, then you may have the greatest chance of actually offering interventions and potentially even slowing the disease course, but in a selected group of people. So it's obviously more cost effective doing this secondary prevention kind of work than looking at the entire population. So we know now that dementia may well start 20 years before symptoms actually become evident. So what is the implication of that in terms of the type of sleep that we should be trying to get and how you tell whether that sleep disruption is going to be damaging in the mm. in long run? Mm. It's a good question, yeah. So we do know those changes are occurring yeah, 10 to 20 years before. So for midlife, I guess my key message that I give to people is prioritise sleep in your life and if you're feeling sleepy in the daytime or if you're feeling that sleep is not refreshing so you're excessively you know, tired in the morning after having sleep, that that's probably a sign that the quality of your sleep is not very good. In older people in particular, they may not be doing as many cognitive activities anymore. They may not be socialising, they may not be exercising. And these things are all really important for consolidating our sleep. But ultimately, the process by which that happens, we're not really sure of yet. We're not sure of, you know, what is that critical period that you reach with this sleep deprivation before it turns into something more problematic. 
But we do know from big prospective studies and longitudinal studies that sleep duration does seem to be important. So seven or eight hours seems to be important. People that are sleeping for very short periods or very, very long periods seem to be at most risk of developing dementia longitudinally. And people with just their own perception of their sleep quality also seems to be important for predicting Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia as well. So I guess the take-home message from that really is if you feel your sleep is not good and it's changed from how it used to be and it's impairing your functioning in the daytime, then it's definitely worth having a look at it and seeing if it can be improved. So overall, what would you suggest to people perhaps in that middle age bracket about ensuring that their sleep quality is good and stays good? Yeah, look, what I would suggest is don't take sleeping tablets. <laughs> Certainly if there's something that's occurred in your life where there's been an incident and there's a bout of poor sleep disturbance, they can be helpful. But generally they're not recommended for older people and they're not recommended for periods beyond two weeks. There are good behavioural techniques or cognitive behavioural psychological techniques for sleep disturbance now. Some of them really look at optimising the efficiency and the quality of sleep. Psychologists and other sleep health psychologists, for example, are very good at doing this and there's a pretty good evidence base now emerging for the use of these techniques for sleep problems. There are lots of environmental things that really feed into sleep problems and also serve to exacerbate them as well. So we need to look at all of those factors pretty comprehensively. So there's a lot of work to be done in this area and it is an exciting time to be doing it since it's only kind of a new and emerging risk factor. But I think that in the absence of a cure for dementia, we certainly need to be focusing more of our attention on how do we promote well-being and how do we promote people's mood and their sleep and all the things that they grapple with on a daily basis. Professor Sharon Naismith is also leader of the newly launched Centre of Research Excellence to Optimise Sleep in Brain Ageing and Neurodegeneration at the University of Sydney. You're with All in the Mind on RN. I'm Lynne Malcolm. We've just heard that the quality of our sleep, especially in middle age, may play a role in the development of many forms of dementia and in turn impact the well-being of those with the condition. Well, new research is now revealing more about the inner experience of someone with a particular form of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. It's a younger onset dementia, so that means that it typically affects people under the age of 65 years. So we're talking about a very different entity to our classic conceptions of late onset dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. And so when people present with a suspected diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia, really the cardinal complaints will be that there has been a change in personality and a change in behaviour. So these people might suddenly start to act out in seemingly inappropriate ways. They may appear disinhibited, impulsive and not able to regulate their behaviour anymore. And so it can be very distressing for family members who notice these changes in character and personality and coupled with a lack of insight in the condition, it can be very difficult to manage those symptoms. Maren Irish is Associate Professor of Psychology and a Cognitive Neuroscientist at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. 
After a decade of working with patients with frontotemporal dementia, Maren Irish recognises that in order to improve the well-being of dementia patients, we need to gain further knowledge of their lived experience. It's often assumed that these patients are lost in their own world of mind-wandering or daydreaming. So Maren Irish decided to investigate. But first, why is the ability to daydream important? There has become a huge surge of interest in the whole field of daydreaming in general in the neuroscientific community. And a few reasons for that are that, number one, it's something we all do irrespective of background, status, age, culture. Um, It's something that seems to require a lot of heavy duty brain power. So when we're daydreaming, our brain is not idle by any means. And there are really rich patterns of activity that we see across very complex brain networks. So this would suggest that we have evolved this capacity, which is highly intensive in terms of brain activity for a specific reason. Otherwise, why would we all do it? And so some of the theories that are being promoted at the moment are that daydreaming actually serves an important function in terms of grounding the self. So when we have a moment to ourselves, we tend to reflect on what we've done over the past or we reconcile events that have happened during the day. But more often than not, our thoughts tend to be future oriented. So we're planning upcoming events. We're thinking about what we need to do next. We're ordering things in terms of our own mental timeline. And so all of this has been suggested to help us to make sense and to maintain continuity of self as we go about our day. Other really interesting aspects of daydreaming are that it may serve a social function and that we work through social scenarios internally. We reflect on what other people were thinking and we might test out social scenarios by simulating them rather than engaging in behaviour that might potentially be costly. So we might reconcile that perhaps somebody was a bit snappy with us because perhaps something else is going on in the background of that person. And then other aspects that daydreaming seems to be particularly important for is that of creative and flexible thought. And so this leads in nicely to our study. But we've seen that there have been a number of people investigating the relationship now between mind wandering and creative expression. And so it seems that when we're not engaged in a particular task or being very task oriented or focused, that's actually the perfect time for ideas and their associations between ideas to loosen. And so the constraints between different constructs are weakened and they can be brought back together then in novel and new ways. And so this has been called an incubation period where A lot of the time people will have these eureka moments in the shower or when they're commuting and suddenly the problem that they were laboring on for, you know, many days comes together in a new way and the novel solution is born out. And it seems that daydreaming is particularly important for those creative sort of breakthroughs. Finding out whether people with frontotemporal dementia are able to daydream presented a real challenge for Maren Irish and her colleagues. How do you measure something as complex and introspective as daydreaming? They had to design a new task. What we were trying to do was to promote boredom and to promote this idea of being in a monotonous, boring situation, which gives rise to 
an ability to mind wander. So like we're all familiar with being stuck in traffic and, you know, our mind tends to wander to other more interesting scenarios and topics. So we created a task that was highly conducive to mind wandering. We validated it in older individuals and found that whenever they engaged on this task, they were mind wandering quite a lot. And we also related this back to known brain activity in the default network, which is the network that gives rise in the brain to these very creative, complex forms of thinking. And so we tested then in the patients. And what was that task? So we've called it the shapes expectations task. And it's basically just a series of very simple geometric shapes that appear on the screen at varying durations. And you don't have to do anything. So we tell participants that they just need to relax and to just look at the shapes. A lot of people worry that there's a subsequent memory test, but there isn't. So it's really just focusing on a very simple stimulus in front of you. And then we ask them to report on what they were thinking about during that time. And the results are absolutely remarkable. So when we first started testing using this task in the frontotemporal dementia patients, what we were finding was a complete lack of this vivid, rich mind wandering. So how did you tell? What sorts of things did they say to you? I remember being particularly struck by the fact that the patients were saying nothing you know, my mind was blank, or they would simply report to me the immediate perceptual features of the stimulus. So they might say that was a red square or I like red. And their thoughts were very much tethered to what was immediately in front of them. They seemed to lack that ability to be able to disengage from the stimulus that was presented in their immediate array and to be able to withdraw into their own internal monologue. And it was really quite stark. We just started seeing this effect over and over again in subsequent patients um, and then realised that we had quite a significant finding on our hands. So they have a real dearth of richness in their experience and in their thoughts. Yeah, and I think one way that we can consider it or liken it to is that really the external environment is what's grabbing their attention most and they seem unable to decouple from the external environment into that rich inner world. So there's something about the way we toggle between the external environment and our own internal thoughts that's a highly sophisticated mechanism that's regulated by two different brain systems. And we know in frontotemporal dementia, key nodes of those brain networks are actually compromised. So they're not able to flick or toggle as efficiently as we do between what's in front of them externally and what's internally driven through their own sort of endogenous thinking. And how might this affect their experience and their sense of well-being? So I think this really resonates with a lot of the behavioural symptoms that they show in their daily lives. So as I've mentioned, they become very impulsive, very stimulus bound. And that's the form of thinking that we were showing on the task, that what's immediately in front of them, that is where their attention is held. And we find that with our patients with frontotemporal dementia, they become very preoccupied with things that are in the immediate context. They make comments about people that are in their immediate um, environment. They will eat food compulsively that's presented in front of them. They may shoplift or gamble. So it's more like their immediate surroundings become key. And that capacity to sort of pause, reflect and introspect to consider alternatives or to be more flexible in their approach to different problems and scenarios is compromised. 
Now that we have a better understanding of what their inner experience is, what are the implications for the way we care for people? It really means that we have to be sensitive to what we're providing to them in their external environment. So the context in which they're operating in becomes key. And so I feel like in care settings, we really need to optimise the environment that the patients are in. We can't assume that if someone is sitting there left to their own devices, that they have the capacity to spontaneously withdraw and entertain themselves. So I think there's a great onus on us now to develop stimulating environments that are tailored or geared towards these specific populations. And the other thing I think that we need to do is to go back through all of the data that we've collected and actually to code to see what is the content of the thoughts. So when they do manage to produce something that isn't stimulus bound, what does that comprise? And can we maybe use that or harness these insights that the patients are providing us with to sort of optimise their care as well? And some forms of dementia uh, don't show this, don't show the, the inability mm. to daydream. Yeah, so what was surprising in this study was we had a control disease control group of Alzheimer's patients. And in fact, we were predicting that perhaps they might show you know, reduced levels of spontaneous thought on this task, but they scored in line with controls, which was quite surprising to us. But it suggests that we cannot um, level the same sort of symptoms or assume that the experience is the same across all dementia types. So what may be compromised in one group may actually be intact in the other. And so in Alzheimer's, what we're finding is that there seemed to be a relatively preserved capacity for some form of internal introspection. Again, what the content of those thoughts is, that's the key thing that we need to address next. And whether it reflects sort of semantic memories or personally relevant memories that have withstood the onslaught of pathology in the early stages of Alzheimer's, all of this remains to be seen. So we need to really go back to code that data to find out when our patients with Alzheimer's are engaged in these acts of mind wandering, what exactly are they thinking of? And it all points to the need for highly personalised care in institutions, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I think if this tells us anything, it's really that we can't have a one size fits all. Every person with dementia brings their own unique sort of history, their unique outlook, ideas, values, everything into the picture. And what may remain preserved in one individual may not necessarily be the same constellation of thoughts and beliefs in another, even within the same diagnosis. And so we really need to start thinking more about how we can tailor our interventions to really promote well-being in the individual. Marin Irish, Associate Professor of Psychology at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Dennis Frost, who we heard from earlier, says that meeting others with dementia has helped him live a more positive life. Here are the messages he'd like to share. It'd be a few things. One thing I'd say is it's not all bad. There are some really good upsides to having dementia. And no two people are the same. What are those upsides? The ones um, I'll give you is a, bit of a humorous experience I had. Uh, a couple of years ago, I took my boys out for dinner prior to Christmas and uh, they're in their late 20s now and I asked them out of amusement could they remember the registration of their first car and they couldn't and I said well ha I can remember mine it was a Morris Major DBU 484 (laughs) 
But at that point, I couldn't remember my PIN number, so I couldn't pay. They had to pay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but on the other side, one thing I've really found that I, I get now is um, with some of the emotional changes, I find music and the lyrics to be totally different to what I experienced before. They have a bigger connection. Um, for example, if I listen to what I would say would be a good bit of music, the only piece of music I think that's been released this century that I would classify as good was David Bowie's Black Star. <laughs> and whenever I sit down and listen to that, I'll actually just begin to cry. That's just the pure, I suppose, emotional connection and joy. It's not sadness, it's, and I find that to be a bit liberating. And do you think it's also an emotion sort of tapping into an earlier time in your life? Yes, but I think about those things that were formative for me. Yeah, they went in to shape things, but they weren't something that was really earth-shattering at the time. But now I look back at them and I think they were really significant events. Like, I always tell people now that if you weren't alive in 1969, you've missed all of human history. <laughs> because we're now on the 50th anniversary of... I can remember three significant things. One was Woodstock. The second is the lunar landing. And the third was, that was the year that Intel began development of their first microprocessor. All interrelated in many respects. Yeah. yeah. Dennis Frost. Head to the All in the Mind website for links to further information and support. Thanks to the team, producer Diane Dean and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano. I'm Lynn Malcolm. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.